This morning, uh, we are going to do something a little bit different, okay? What we're going to do is we are uh, not going to uh, go sort of verse by verse through a chapter. We are actually going to spend a moment talking about a particular topic that we've seen throughout the book of Acts, okay? And that topic is evangelism, okay? Now, here's the deal. Is there anything more stressful for Christians than evangelism? Let me go put up a quote up there, okay? This is an honest, real quote, okay? When I think about sharing my faith, my mind goes blank, my palms get sweaty, and nothing I say seems to make any sense, okay? Anybody relate to that? Uh, Let me ask again. Anybody relate to that? Raise your hands, okay? Yes, okay, yes. Like Carl and Sandra are the only two people that are like, I cannot relate to that. I have no idea what that's like, right? (laughs) And for those of you that know Carl and Sandra, they're the type of people that as soon as you sit on a bus somewhere, they'll be like, do you know Jesus, okay? (laughs) For the rest of us, this is really, really hard. And as I think about this, I think evangelism is stressful for a number of reasons, okay? One reason why I think it's stressful is because we as Christians know that we're supposed to do it. It's expected, okay? Let me go ahead and put up some passages up there. Matthew 28, 19 to 20, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I am with you. Next verse, Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. John 20, 21, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And Acts 1.8, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses and so on and so forth. We know we're supposed to do it. It's clear. Scripture expects us to do it. But for some reason, if you're like me, that seems to heighten all the more the stress and the tension, not ease it. Anybody else, right? The fact that we're supposed to do something, that we're not doing it. As someone else honestly said, the problem is not that I don't know. It's that I just don't want to. <laughs> um, and, then, and then there's this reason for why it's stressful. Is these phenomenal, spectacular, supernatural stories of witness and testimony that you hear about? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Right? So some, you know, somebody comes and says, you know, you would never believe what happened. I was sitting on a plane and somebody was sitting next to me. And I was just sitting there minding my own business, and the prince turned to me and said, do you know what? I'm looking for God. (laughs) Right? And this person goes, so I I turned next to him. I said, really? You're looking for God? Well, let me tell you about this God. It's like the whole Ethiopian, you know, Acts 8 kind of a thing, right? And, And honestly, I am your pastor, but I am honestly sharing with you, when I hear stories like that, when I hear stories like that, you know what goes through my mind? You know what goes through my mind? What goes through my mind is not, wow, that's unbelievable. What goes through my mind is like, yeah, like really for sure. What goes through my mind is not like, whoa, what goes through my mind is huge skepticism and doubt, like, give me a break. Like that really happens, right? Anybody else? Okay. I'm totally trying to relate to you this morning as you relate to me, okay? I'm going, does that really, really happen, right? And and so when I hear these phenomenal, incredible stories about about these people, you and I think about, let's be honest, our family, our coworkers, our neighbors, and we put ourselves in that same situation, and that neighbor sitting next to us would not turn to us and go, I'm looking for God, and we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That neighbor, frankly, wants to have nothing to do with God, or who's very closed or hardened. You know? So I don't know about you, but I hear some of these phenomenal stories, and I go, oh, man, that just increases the tension some more. And then there is this also, okay? That, 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 by the way, sometimes, honestly, sometimes I go up to these people that share these phenomenal stories. I go, did you just, like, make that up? Because <laughs> it's so unbelievable. I'm like, why does that never happen to me, you know? I don't know. Anybody else? Okay. And then there's this, too. And then there's this, too. And this is something that maybe you guys haven't thought about. Think about it, what it's like. For the other person on the other end. Think about what it's like for the non-Christian. I have to have non-Christian friends, and I ask them what it's like sometimes, and here's what they say. They say, Peter, Christians need to put themselves in our shoes and see what it's like. For example, they say, when a Christian wants to come, first of all, I don't even know them a lot of times. And then all of a sudden, they're very like open and sharing these personal, really intimate details and stories Okay? Because a Christian has good intentions and motives and they want to like be vulnerable, honest. But the non-Christian is going, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't want to know all this stuff. I don't even know you. 
right? And it, I, the image I have in my mind is, you know, some cultures, they don't, they don't know the whole, like, you're not supposed to stand too close to somebody, you know? You know what I mean? That's really uncomfortable. So imagine that kind of in a spirit, you know? That person's like right there in your face. A non-Christian's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Why, why are you sharing all this stuff? And then there's this also. Not only are they sharing these personal, personal things, but also we have the most unbelievable way of introducing kind of the topic, you know? For example, for years, Christians thought a great idea to talk about Jesus was to begin with the question, you know, if you were to die tonight. If you were to die tonight, or if you were to go walk outside today and were hit by a car, you know, or something along those lines, and I'm serious, put yourself in an non-Christian shoes, put yourself in that person who doesn't believe, and they're going, what? Why, why would you even ask that question? It's morbid. It's like, it's, it's terrible. It's depressing. And yet, that's how a lot of times we go, if you were to, and then not only that, but we go, in Romans chapter 3, and if you think about it, think about it, I'm telling you, put yourself in non-Christian, and they're going, I don't even believe the Bible. And you're opening up Bible passages and telling me about what God says, so on and so forth. Why are you telling me? And then there's this too. And then, of course, we live in a culture where a lot of our friends would say, you know what, it's great that you believe that, but keep it to yourself. So a cool Christian, a good Christian, is somebody who's politically correct enough to keep their beliefs to themselves and won't shove it down someone else's throat. And some of us sitting here this morning hear that and we go, yeah, that's kind of true. We shouldn't do that. That's kind of offensive, right? And, and, and then there's this one thing. I just, you, I'm going to be careful today, but if you, brought, you bring a non-Christian friend, you know, and, and the pastor's talking about evangelism, the pastor's referring to your non-Christian friend as a lost soul, you know? And that's a biblical word. We know why we use it, you know? Jesus said, I came to save and seek that which was lost, right? It's even one of our core values. We want lost soul. But if you're a non-Christian, you're sitting there, and some pastor's up there going, Allah, we care for the lost soul. You're lost. lost. This person might be sitting there going, why are you telling me I'm lost? I'm not lost. And the whole non-Christian, unbeliever, what do we, I, I'm just being honest with you guys. About what do we refer, you know, non-Christian, unbeliever? They're going, unbeliever, I believe in something. I believe in something. That might not be your God, but I, I'm a believer. So it makes the whole, like, how do we even, you see what I'm saying? The complexity. So the question becomes, why do we even bother? Why, why, why do it? Why, why even do it? Well, we do it because. We do it because. It's at the center of God's heart. It's at the center of God's heart. We've been going through the book of Acts. And what we've been seeing through the book of Acts, you guys, is that it it chronicles the beginning of Christianity and the movement of Christianity. And the book follows the early days of the church to begin with a handful of people who believe this unbelievable message that Jesus Christ died and rose again. And these people, these people in the book of Acts were so jazzed about this unbelievable message that Jesus Christ died and rose again. They, they went everywhere and told anybody and everybody that would meet. They talked about it. And they were so jazzed about it and they were so effective at talking about Jesus and sharing about Jesus that historians say within 300 years, 300 years, they were able to change and win over a brittle, brutal society, a Roman Empire. And what we've been seeing is as we go through the book of Acts, their success lay in one critical factor. Their success was not because they were more spiritual. Their success wasn't because they were more fired up. Their success wasn't any of them. Their success lay in the fact that there was this God, an unstoppable God who was at work in them. And we've seen throughout the book of Acts that in some ways it's about the church and Christians and what they were doing. But more importantly, the book of Acts is about an unstoppable God and an unstoppable mission who was at work. And what we've been saying throughout this sermon series, this is so critical for you and I to understand, is this. This will ultimately determine whether you and I move out with mission and confidence or we sort of exist and live for the status quo. If you and I really and truly got our, got our brain, our, our life wrapped around this fact that we have an unstoppable God who is on an unstoppable mission and he is at work in every nook and cranny of this world today, I wonder how that would change our lives. Let me ask you something. What would your next 24 hours be? What would your next day be like if you live with an understanding and belief that Jesus Christ died, but then he rose again, defeating Satan, sin, and death. Would your life be any different? Would your life be any different if you really understood and believed and got on board with the fact that Jesus Christ defeated Satan, sin, and death, and he rules today? How would that change your perspective about how you view your non-Christian friends? 
your coworkers, your family members. How would that change your perspective about the community that you live in, the city, that country? How would that change your perspective about what you think you could attempt for God and not attempt for God? Do you see what I'm saying? How would our perspective be different if we really believe that we have an unstoppable God who's on an unstoppable mission? And if you're not a Christian here this morning, I the whole reason why we talk about what we talk about, and the whole reason why you're going to hear me as a pastor talking to my, not, my Christian friends and church family members is because at the center of everything that we do around here is this belief that we have a God who created men and women, his prized creation in his image, so that he could have a passionate love affair with them. But men and women chose to break that relationship, choosing disobedience and rebellion to do their own thing. But here's the amazing thing. The God of the Bible says that instead of sort of sitting up there going, you know, that's just very disappointing. Or, you know, you messed it up. You got to fix it. You know, we have a God in the Bible who says, I will now begin a passionate pursuit. Everybody say pursuit. Pursuit. A passionate pursuit. Initiative. Pursuit to reconcile men and women to himself. If you're new to this whole Christian thing, you have no idea how different Christianity is from religion. Religion says we pursue God through good efforts, morality, and good deeds. Then he accepts us and loves us. That's religion. Christianity says we have a God who pursues us. Is that good news? We have a God who pursues us in our rebellion, in our disobedience. We have a God who pursues us, comes after us, and he doesn't stand up there saying, if you act right, if you're moral, we have a God who pursues us in our immorality, pursues us in our wickedness, pursues us. When, this is the reason why some of your friends don't want to come to church, because they think Christianity is a God who says, when you get your act right, when you do the right things, you obey the rules, to the, then maybe I will come and accept you and love you. Christianity says the other way around. Christianity says, essence of Christianity is we have a holy God who pursues us in our crap, in our sin, in our wickedness. I thought about this this week. Sometimes I think the thing that we want the most, we fear the most. Sometimes I think that we want the most, we fear the most. Uh, I remember one time, Jenny and I were talking, right? It was at one of those intimate moments, and, and she says, Peter, why do you love me? And I was trying to declare my, you know, unconditional love for her. And I said, I love you for no good reason. <laughs> I was young and foolish. <laughs> you know, I was proud of it, too. I'm like, I love you for no good reason, Jenny. And so, you know, I'm, I, I'm intuitive. You know, can you tell I'm, I'm an intuitive person? So I looked at her facial expression, and I realized I had somehow miscommunicated or she had misunderstood, right? So I was like, let me try again. I, I love you even if you're not lovely. <laughs> Wait, what? I says, let me get this straight. You, you love me even though, even though I'm not lovely, and you love me even though there's no good reason for you to love me, right? Is that what you're saying? My unconditional love for her. I said, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's so many things. There's so many things about Jenny that I love, but you know what? Let me tell you something. I've learned over the years. You and I, human beings, are a lot more comfortable with conditional love than unconditional love. You and I are way more comfortable with conditional love. I love you, Jenny, because you're beautiful. I love you, Jenny, because you're smart. I love you, Jenny, because you're an amazing mom. I love you, Jenny, because you're... I think this is the reason why we're uncomfortable with God. We don't know what to do with His unconditional love for us. I think it disorients us. I think it messes us up. I think it completely screws us up. Think about this for a moment, right? We want God to love us for an endless number of good reasons. But at the same time, we, we find ourselves nervous before God because he sees right through us. He sees right through us and he knows everything about us that isn't lovable. 
He tells us he loves us with an unconditional love, and we don't know how to reconcile that. Are you listening this morning? We don't know how to reconcile that because we know who we are. We know all that's unlovely within us. And we wonder how we've come, how we've come worthy of such love. And I think that's what worries us. We, we know we're not, and that's why we run. I think we run from God because we're uncomfortable with the fact that he sees us as he is. And in our minds, we've convinced ourselves that when we draw near to God, instead of drowning in condemnation, we would find ourselves swimming in compassion. I think we've convinced ourselves that if we draw near to this God, instead of receiving us and embracing us in our brokenness as we are, that he would reject us. The great thing about God is that he is somebody that we deserve the least. And yet he's somebody that we need the most. And he desires us the most. That's the gospel. See, unconditional love is hard for us to wrap our brains around, but that's at the essence of the gospel because Jesus Christ says, here's why I came. I didn't come because I wanted to give you a list of things and point you to how you can get right with God. He said, I know you couldn't do enough things to get right with God on your own because you're not moral, you're not. So I came, listen, gospel, I lived the life that you should have lived and I died the death you should have died. He lived a perfectly sinless, righteous life. Perfectly sinless, righteous life. Not only that, but at the end of his life, short 33 years, he goes to the cross and he dies the death we should have, we should have died for our disobedience, for our rebellion, for our sin. And the Bible says, the gospel says, when we trust him, when we place our faith in him, when we place our faith in him, check this out, the life that he lived becomes ours and the death that, that, that death that he died becomes ours. That is what this means. I'm a parent, so we're used to using wipes these days, you know. I imagine this. I don't know if this will be helpful to you, but for me. It's almost like God took a cosmic wipe, okay, and saw you and me and all of our crap and sin, and he said, I'm going to wipe. <laughs> I know. It's intentional. You and I have no idea how offensive our sin is to God. And yet this holy God takes his holy wipe and he looks at us and he says, oh man, that stinks. <laughs> the Bible says in Psalms that he has wiped away our sins so clean, east is from the west. Not only that, but you know what he does? The Bible says he imputes Christ's righteousness. Imputation is a big theological word that says God gives us Christ's righteousness in such a way that when God sees us, he sees us as he sees his son, Jesus. That holy, that beautiful, that perfect, that righteous. Right now, today, if you're a Christian, no matter who you are, what you've done, do you know that? That's how God sees you. This is the story of God. This is... He pursues us with his love, pursues us with his love, pursues us with his love. And even if you've said no, and even if you've rejected him, run away, God pursues us with his love. Even through our sin, even through our disobedience. And the message that comes throughout the Bible, message that rings throughout the Bible from beginning changes to the very end is, God is on a passionate pursuit for men and women who refuse him, who don't believe in him, who reject him. God is on a passionate pursuit. Can I just tell you something? I just share it from your heart as a pastor. You know, do you know that when we planted this church seven years ago, this is the whole reason why we did this. I'm going to be very honest here. We didn't plant this church so that we'd be a church that would be really good at helping out the poor, even though that's very good. We didn't plant this church so that we could be effective in justice issues, even though that's part of the gospel. We planted this church because at the end of the day, I looked at my friends who didn't know Jesus. I looked at the people around me who didn't know Jesus, who didn't want to go to church because they thought of God as this religious. We planted this church seven years ago because we wanted men and women, your friends, your coworkers, people that don't know Jesus, to come to know Jesus. We planted this church so that this church will be filled with people who are seeking, searching, and looking for this God. We planted this church so that their searching would one day connect with this God who has been searching them. 
You need to know that. You need to know that because the last three, four months, my heart has been burdened. Can I just be honest? My heart has been burdened. My, I've been sharing with our staff. My heart has been burdened. Sometimes I can't sleep on Saturday nights. My heart has been burdened because I look at the people that I know around me who don't know Jesus. And I look at you and I look at our church and I ask the question, how passionate am I? How fired up am I? How passionate am I about those around me who don't know Jesus? And no, we don't like the word hell and we don't talk about hell in our church. But I can tell you this, if my heart is not burdened, if my heart is not broken at the fact that there are men and women who don't know Jesus and will spend eternity apart from God, if that fact no longer bothers me, something is wrong. Something is wrong. If I go day after day at Starbucks at work where I eat, if I go day after day with my friends and people that I know and where they will spend eternity no longer bothers me. It's great that we help the poor. It's great that we're doing all these things. It's a part of the gospel, essential part of the gospel. But friends, can I ask you something? When is the last time you couldn't go to sleep because you looked at your non-Christian friends and said, God, I don't want them to spend eternity apart from you. We started this church. We started this church so that men and women would come to know this God who's been seeking him from all of eternity. Which brings us back to evangelism. Because when we look at the book of Acts, what we see is a group of people who totally got on board with the mission of God. And they began, can I introduce a new word here this morning? Began gospeling. Everybody say gospeling. Gospeling. Let's say that one more time. Gospeling. If you don't like the word evangelism because it smacks of, you know, fundamentalists and fringes, you know, of pushing, you could use this word, okay? It's a very biblical word, okay? Gospeling which comes from that Greek word, which means the gospel lies. And we find this throughout the book of Acts with people telling the good news about what Jesus did for us. And what we see in the book of Acts is that gospeling, sharing the message of gospel was normal, was a natural part of their life. Everybody did it. Acts chapter 8, verse 4, we find a passage like this. Those who have been scattered, preached the word wherever they went. In other words, gospeling, you guys, wasn't something just for the spiritual elite. It wasn't just for the apostles. Gospeling and sharing their faith and sharing the gospel was for everybody. Everybody did it. Now, just stop right here. Let me say this. Breathe a sigh of relief because if you, if you thought in light of what I said so far, you were going to get a heavy dosage of guilt, heavy dosage of why aren't you doing it, heavy dosage of you need to do more, you could relax because I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Again, I'm under the assumption that you care about your non-Christian friends. Amen? You care about their eternal destiny. You care about, you care about the fact that they don't know Jesus. But sometimes the struggle is not that we don't care, but we go, what do I do? I'm not very good at it, so on and so forth. Now, what I want to do is this. For the next few minutes, I want to just clear up a misunderstanding on why we think this is so stressful for us. And then talk about one of the most effective ways I think we can do this. And lastly, I want to end with where we get the power. Okay? I want to talk to you about why I think there's so much stress about this. You know, I want you to breathe a, sigh, breathe a sigh of relief. I think the problem is, and put it up there, there are faulty measures of how we've defined success. Okay? Can everybody, how, faulty measures. In other words, how do we normally define whether somebody was successful in gospeling? We ask this question, did you share? In other words, did you share the gospel? Did you, was there an articulation of the essential truths of the gospel? Did you actually articulate? And now let me get, don't get me wrong. It is absolutely incredibly important that you and I learn the essential truths of the gospel. And I said this last Sunday, what I just did at the front of our, uh, front of this sermon, when I talked to you about who God is and what he has done and what the biblical sort of story trajectory is of God's pursuit for us, you need to be able to share that with your non-Christian friends. We need to know it. Please don't be lazy about it. Get to know it. Learn it. But if we define success solely and only in terms of that, this is what you get. My wife was at a dinner with all of her uh, doctor friends or pediatrician friends, and they're just incredible tight-knit community. And I wasn't there that night because I was working. And she came home. She said, Peter, I wish you would have been here that night. I said, why? She said, because we were talking about different things. And Eric, who's one of the husbands of one of her partners, Eric just, he's really searching. I could sense he's, by the way, if, if you know my wife, my wife is like the, 
poster person, child person for like the non-evangelist. You know, my wife is the, I'm going to live my life out. Don't ask, don't ask. I'm just going to live it out. That's, that's my wife. Respect her so much because she does like a hundred times better than I do. So she's sitting there and she said, Eric began asking questions. He started saying things like, you know what? <sighs> we're raising these kids and we're thinking about where we need to take them to church and so on and so forth. And then he started talking about science and God's creation, all these like big, big questions, right? And Jenny just said, she just, she just, she just kind of just, just became even more, and she just, and she just kind of wanted, and she came home. She's like, I wish you could have been there because he had all these questions. That, and I, you know what I said to her? I said, Jenny, do you realize that you are doing a lot more than you actually think? Do you realize that you being around those folks and you're talking about your life and what you're doing, even if you can't answer all their questions, even if you get an opportunity to go, do you, do you realize that gospeling was happening? What if we didn't measure it solely in terms of, did you share? Secondly, here's the second faulty measure. Did they pray the prayer? Anybody? 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 Oh, my gosh. Okay, I'm, I'm showing my gosh. I grew kind of up in the church, and this was like the big thing, man. This was like the big thing, right? This is a big thing. I was the guy, let me just, I have to share this before. I was the guy that taught, was taught evangelism like this, okay? When I was 13, 14 years old, just to become a Christian, a guy, an older brother in my church, gave me a box of four spiritual laws, and he said, Peter, I want you to stand at the corner of California and Lawrence. No, I'm sorry, not California Lawrence. Kimball and Lawrence. Brown line stop. I want you to stop. And he said, do not come back to church until you get rid of all of this. Do not come back until you have handed out every single one of these, like, 200 tracks. Fifth, 14 years old. So there I am standing at the corner of Lawrence and Kimball, brown line stop, okay, at the height of, like, rush hour when everybody's getting off, right? I am standing there with the box, okay? I'm standing, just imagine, right, these big, fat Coke glasses, right, a box of, like, box of, like, tracks, right? And as people come by, I am literally shaking, But I was smart, see? I said, you know, if I give one at a time to each person, I'm going to be here forever. <laughs> I don't know how we came to this, but how, since when did we start defining whether success of evangelism was, did you pray the prayer? Did they pray the sinner's prayer? Did they get down on their knees and accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? If that's, again, how we define success... I mean, goodness gracious, many of us would be like, I'm not even going to try. Why? Because I'm terrible at that. I'm going to fail at it. And who wants to fail at something all the time? What if this wasn't how we get your success? What if it wasn't just my opinion? What if the scriptures had to say something about what successful gospeling is? See, I think so much confusion about evangelism, and you guys could relate to this because I'm going to ask you to raise your hand in a moment. So much confusion, unnecessary stress about evangelism, is a failure to understand this critical thing about evangelism. Evangelism is a process. It's a journey. How many of you guys could say, I came to know Jesus Christ through a number of people and a number of circumstances over a number of months and years? Raise your hands. Raise your hands. Hi, hi. Raise your hands. Okay, you put your hands up. If this is how we come to know Jesus, that it's a process, it's a journey, that it takes a number of people doing a number of things over a period of number of whatever, and we didn't measure evangelism and gospeling success in terms of did they pray the prayer and did you share? If we understood that evangelism was a process, maybe a different definition of evangelism would be helpful, like this one. And we've used this in our church. Evangelism is... In cooperation with the Holy Spirit, helping someone move one step closer to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Evangelism is in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, helping someone move one step closer to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Did you get that? Evangelism is in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. What is that important? Why is that important? Because evangelism, gospeling, is in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. And that is, again, this recognition that God is at work. God is at work in men and women's lives. It's not something that we need to guess about. If we really believe that we have an unstoppable God and an unstoppable mission, we have this understanding that God is at work. And furthermore, as he's through the book of Acts, God ultimately opens people's hearts. 
God is the one that opens people's hearts. It's not up to us. And that's a huge relief because whenever I sit and I'm talking about, you know, I want to share the gospel, immediately the first thing that goes through my mind, maybe it's because my training is, I'm always tempted to go, is it the precision of the argument? How precise am I? Do I have all the right things to say? Is the presentation going to be okay? Is the delivery going to And I'm sitting there realizing, God, whatever happens in terms of the sharing actual declaration, it's ultimately until you open people's hearts. You open people's hearts. Uh, let me tell you how, how profoundly powerful and important this is. This morning, right before the service started, I was in the bathroom. Um, I, ran into, I ran into one of our fellow, one of our guys. His cousin was killed, 28 years old. His cousin was hit by a car on the highway and instantly killed like four days ago. So he asked for prayer and we're praying for him. I was just talking to him in the bathroom. He says, Pastor Peter, can you especially pray for his dad? I said, why? He says, his dad's an atheist. He's not a believer. And I'm, immediately I'm going, oh, because you know, you and I know what's going to happen, right? He's not an atheist. One of two things will happen. Something like this tragedy of losing his son, 28 years old, will embolden him and harden him even more in saying, not only is there no God, but if there is a God, I don't want to worship someone like him. Or, or, it's hard to become open. If that was up to us, why even try? Are you hearing what I'm saying? If it was up to us to open people's hearts, why even bother? I'm not that smart. I'm not that spiritual. I'm not that holy. I don't have my stuff together that well. If it was up to me to, 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 to make sure someone's heart was open, I'm, I'm not even going to try. But what if we have an unstoppable God who's on an unstoppable mission, and he is the one that opens people's hearts? in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. And the second part of this definition, which is really helpful, is evangelism is then helping somebody move one step closer, one step closer to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. You know why that's so encouraging for me? Because it means that you're already doing it. If you're praying for somebody, guess what? You're gospeling. If you're spending time with somebody, sitting down, sharing, you are gospeling. If you are spending time tutoring those students in that school and just loving on them, you are gospeling. If you are somebody that's radically serving the poor and homeless, you are gospeling. Anything and everything that we do to help somebody take just one step closer to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ is gospeling. Is that good news? Can you do that? Even I can do that. One step closer to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and, and what we're going to, and it's not going to be long here. What, what I want to just introduce to you that we've seen throughout the book of Acts is that one of the most effective ways that we could help somebody move one step closer, just one step closer to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ is called relational evangelism. That is being in friendship with them. I know, you're sitting there going, I came to church to hear that. <laughs> That's so common sense. You mean evangelism and taking helping somebody take one step closer to saving relationship with Jesus Christ is, 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 is one of the best ways is to be in relationship with people, relationship with non-Christian friends, relationship with people in such a way that I just love them, care for them, and just get to know them. Like, that is one of the most effective ways to which I say yes. But immediately I ask the question of how many of you sitting here today, today, this is conviction, how many of you sitting here today can't even think of one person who doesn't know Jesus. That you have a deep level of friendship and relationship with or getting to know. How many of you guys sitting here today could say, um, I mean, I know a handful of non-Christians because I see them say hi, bye. But in terms of relationship, intentionality, me, like I don't have any, any, anybody. If statistics are true, that's like 70% of you. 70% of us in this room, if we've been Christians for more than two years, literally have almost no close, ongoing, meaningful relationship with people outside the Christian faith. 
This is the reason why I'm spending the entire Sunday talking to you about this. Now, the litmus test is, is this in Scripture? Do we find it in the Bible? Peter, is this just your opinion, or do we find it in the Bible? We find it in the Bible, and we've seen it throughout the book of Acts. Oikos evangelism. Oikos evangelism. Oikos evangelism is household evangelism. Oikos is the word for household. Household evangelism is, is, is basically says we take advantage of, we think about our intentional network of friendships, co-workers, our neighbors, our family members, our friends, people that we're in clubs with, people that we're in different. These are people that we have an ongoing relationship on a regular basis. And because, because, again, put yourself in their shoes. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, you want to find out the Christian faith. The thing that they want to know is not just tell me about the gospel. The thing that they want to know is, can I see it? Can I see it? Can I touch it? Can I feel it? Can I smell it? Can I, can I see it in you? So it's not just exhortation. But if I want to know this God, can you demonstrate it for me? Can, I, can you demonstrate? Can I come up real close and kind of, can I come up real close, touch and feel? That's what people want to know. That's what people want to know. People don't want just to tell. They want to be able to see it, smell it, touch it. And how do they do that in the context of relationships? Here are a handful of passages I'm going to put up. Acts chapter 10, verse 24. The following day, Peter, and you guys are familiar with this because we already talked about this, arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and they called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him. And the rest of the story, of course, is that the apostle Peter shares the gospel. Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius and his oikos, household. They come to faith. Acts chapter 16, verse 14. We talked about this last week. The Lord opened, that's Lydia, her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and members of her household were baptized. Acts chapter 16, verse 20. Then the jailer's conversion brought them out and asked her, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. Acts 18. Seven. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. The consistent pattern of evangelism, good news, in the book of Acts, after Acts chapter 10. It's not just Paul declaring the gospel in front of him. The consistent pattern of evangelism is household, network, relationship friendship, who you know, who know you. Now, you guys, a couple, just, these are free, okay? These are free. A couple more, okay? In the Gospels. John chapter 1, verse 41. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah, that is the Christ. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This, by the way, is a great example of how somebody lives out their gospel in their relatives, their family. One more. Okay, this is also free. Mark chapter 2, verse 14. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and disciples, for there were many who followed him. So here's an example of, here's an example of somebody who says, my network, my business associates. So I want them to hear Jesus, so he invites all of his business associates. You guys, this is an earth-shattering like mind-blowing insight about why this is helpful and why this is effective. Your friends and my friends and people that we know who don't know Jesus, especially in our culture today, are saying, it's great that you believe what you believe. It's great that you believe that you believe in absolute truth. But the thing that they want to know is, I don't want to just hear about truth. Can I feel the truth? Can I feel it? Can I see it? Can I smell it? Can I embrace it? Can I, can, is there can, is the truth that you say that you believe? Jesus Christ, the way, truth, and the life. I don't just want to hear about it. Can I see it? Can I touch it? Can I feel it? The people that you and I know in our lives that want to see the gospel of Jesus Christ and see it lived out are people who are saying, you know, I've heard a lot of things about Christianity, and I've seen a lot of things about Christianity, what people are doing, but the thing that might convince me is not just somebody who's coming along and preaching here and there and, and, and spewing out Bible verses, but somebody who's... (laughs) 
one of the things that breaks my heart more than anything else is, and I'm going to talk about this, my hangout place is Starbucks on Elston. Many of you know who've had appointments with me. You know, that's why I want you to meet me. I love hanging out there because of the guys I know. You know what breaks my heart? When I talk to somebody who works there, and I ask him, I go, when's the last time you went to church? And he goes, oh, so-and-so. And I said, why don't you go to church? You know what they say? Almost always, the top two reasons are, one, I don't have my stuff together. And I just feel uncomfortable going to church, religion. Secondly, they say, I just feel like I'm going to be judged. I just feel like I'm going to be judged. What if your non-Christian friends, my non-Christian friends, were able to be a part of a community of people who said, you know what? Come as you are. Come as you are. No, no, you really, you really want me to come? You don't, you, you don't know the stuff that I'm doing. Oh, no, no, it's okay. It's okay. You don't know God. Come as you are. But what about my junk? What about my junk? Am I going to be judged? No, no, no. Come as you are. Come on, come on. Be a part of this community. Yeah, what about these questions? You don't know the questions that I have. The questions that I have might offend you. Bring it. Bring it. You sure? What if they belong to? What if these not Christian friends? What if the people that you and I know were part of a community or had a friendship with somebody and they honestly knew they could ask any question they wanted without being judged? They could bring any of their junk regardless of what they're doing and knew, knew that you could hear them, you could listen to them, you could pray for them, you could continue to love on them. What if they knew that there was a place where the most irreligious, non-spiritual, God-rebelling person could come and say, you sure you want to be in this relationship with me? What if there was that kind of a community of people? Do you think they might want to be a part of that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. People in our culture are not rejecting absolute truth just to reject absolute truth. It's only half true. They're saying, I want to see it. I want to feel it. I want to touch it. I want to be able to... Can you, can you show me? Real quick, you guys. Before I talk about the power, where we get the power for, for, for network evangelism, let me just go into just, just some, of the, some of the benefits or some of the, some of the be- advantages of relational evangelism. First word is Authentic. Authentic. Everybody say authentic. Authentic. You know why this is important? Because instead of trying to be somebody that you're not, the reason why relational evangelism is so powerfully effective is because you could be you. You don't have to be somebody that you're not. Are you not extroverted? You don't have to be extroverted. You could be you. You could be introverted. Do you not like talking to people on a regular basis, especially strangers? You don't have to. Be you. Be you. You afraid of manipulation and sales pitch? Don't worry about it. There's no manipulative sales pitch involved. Be you. It's authentic. Relational evangelism you be you. Is that good news? I think so. Secondly, it's personal. It's personal. Do you realize that we belong to the most advertised generation ever? Do you realize that people today are bombarded with people who want to try and sell stuff to them? This is the reason why when your friends and my friends, again, you know, these kinds of things, I, one of the Starbucks guys, he comes and he goes, Peter, do you watch religious channel? And I know what they mean. I know what they mean. Religious channel. What they see in terms of Christianity and what they hear is they turn on that television and there's that guy with poofy hair, right? I'm serious. That guy with the poofy hair, he's got a shiny silk suit and he's driving a Bentley or whatever. And he's saying stuff about what Christianity is to them. And all it is is just like a sales pitch that says, give me money, give me money, give me money, give me money. The great thing about network oikos evangelism is that it's personal. Let me ask you something. If you had huge issues and problems, who would you want to go talk to? If you have questions about eternity and God and spirituality, who would you want to go talk to? Would you want to go talk to a stranger? Wouldn't you want to go talk to a trusted friend? Your friends that have questions and want to know won't go to a stranger, but they might come and talk to you. Personal. And by the way, one other thing about personal. Would you be honest enough to share your weaknesses? One day, one thing I said opened this guy up to me. He was talking about how he just wasn't being a very good father. I honestly told him, I said, you know, I feel like that a lot. He said, you're a pastor. I'm like, I know. <laughs> and he started sharing about why he was struggling with his marriage which opened the great door for me to go, do you know what I said to my wife one time? I told her that I love you for no good reason. (laughs) 
the gospel. See how that worked? See how that worked? It's personal. Third, it's natural. It's natural. First, evangelism, relationship, it's natural. In other words, you incorporate it into your daily life, right? Every day, what you do, what you love to do. It's, anybody busy? Busy? Everybody should be raising their hands right now. I'm busy. I've got no margins in my life. Listen, you may look at me and go, Peter, you're not busy. You just work on Sunday. What do you do, right? Can I just tell you something, okay? I'm a little busy, okay? I'm a little busy. So here's what I do. Here's what I do. I go to the office for a couple hours, and then I go park myself at the Starbucks. And please, please, new community church members, don't come there, okay? I, I hang out there. I hang out there. I hang out there because I'm getting to know John Simmons. He's 25 years old. He used to go to DePaul. He graduated. He's a DJ, man, here in Chicago. And every time I see him, every time I see him, I go, John, how's your show going? He tells me how his shows are going. And he always says, I'm going to show up at church one of these days. And I go, how are you going to show up when you have shows until 3, 4 in the morning on Saturday? He goes, oh, I know. John Simmons, he's a great guy. He grew up in church, actually. walked away because it was no longer relevant for him. I'm getting to know Earl better. Earl. Earl's a 57, 58-year-old African-American man from the South. He's from Georgia. He looks like Earl Jones. uh, uh, What's his name? Earl. James Earl Jones, and he talks like him too. Some of you guys have been at Starbucks, you know who he is. The nicest guy in the world, nicest guy in the world. He's a vegetarian. He's a vegetarian. So he's telling me about he's, how, how, how he's you know, been struggling with his health and stuff like that. So we talk about diet and eating salmon and vegetables and stuff like that. Connor, Connor's a 22-year-old kid who grew up actually not far from here in the suburbs outside of Chicago. Connor's a personal trainer, so I get a lot of personal training tips from him. Okay? <laughs> so we talk a lot. Here's the thing about Connor. Here's the thing about Connor. Connor thinks Christianity is for wimps. Okay? You, a lot of your friends go, why would I want to become a Christian? Because when I think of Christianity, I think of a bunch of wimps and women. That's what they think. So here's Connor who's offended and turned off by Christianity because he thinks that Jesus is a wimp. I wish he was here last week to hear that Jesus is a conquering king and hero. Hmm? Jocelyn. Jocelyn's 19 years old. She's Puerto Rican. She's from the neighborhood. Friendliest, nicest girl. Okay. Hi, Peter. How's it going? Nicest girl. Nicest girl. I can go on and on. These are men and women that I meet every single day there doing what I love to do, which is drink coffee, eat bagels. (laughs) And talk. What do you do? Book clubs, where you eat lunch, where you work out, where you get your hair cut, guy behind the counter at the grocery deli. It's natural. Fourth, it's process-oriented. Hear me, please. It's not about getting a decision. It's not about getting that person. Listen, if you're really suave and you're manipulative, you can get somebody to make a decision. But Jesus Christ says, don't you dare manipulate somebody into the kingdom process-oriented. It's not about getting a decision. Personality, this is the thing about I love. This is the thing about I love, okay? Because I'm a spaz, as you can tell, and with these guys at Starbucks, I'm looking for opportunities, right? To go, uh, but, but, they're in the driver's seat. That's the beautiful thing about friendship evangelism. They're in the driver's seat. They dictate the pace that this goes. So when they go, don't want to talk about that, I go, we don't have to talk about that. When they go, that's a little too close for comfort, that's a little too close for comfort. They're in the driver's seat. And I love it. I love it. Do you really, for crying out loud, for some of you guys sitting here, you're going, I became a Christian coming to new community after growing up in church. I mean, yeah. it takes years to understand the message of Jesus Christ and process it, right? So where in the world do we get this idea that a handful of conversations, and we can go, you ready? You ready? You ready? They look at you going, ready for what? Get the heck away from me, right? No, I'm not ready. I need to understand. I need to process. Jesus Christ, who is he? What? Process-oriented. If you're not hearing anything, can you hear this morning? Please do not treat those that you're in relationship with as evangelism cases. It's offensive. It's insulting. Do not love people in order to evangelize them. You evangelize them because you love them. Do not love people so that they can be brought into the kingdom. Love on them and evangelize them because you love them.
disciple making. One of the most detrimental ways that Christians have done evangelism over the years is that we put high premium on decisions. And what I found is when people accept Christ in our church, I ask them, I go, when, was the last, when, did, you, when did you accept Christ? You know what they say? They go, well, I made this decision. What happened? Well, after the decision, made the decision, walked up, made the decision, nobody came around me and taught me what it was like to grow in Christ. The beautiful thing about relation evangelism is that when somebody comes to know Christ, the beautiful thing is there's already a built network of friendships around them so that after they make the decision to cross the line, they have people that they already know and trust who could walk them along. And making disciples is not something that you need to force. Making disciples as they become a Christian is something that's already built in. Now, you guys, um, Typically, maybe, what I would do after something like this is I would say, you know what, you need to go ahead and do it now. You know what to do. But here's the thing that I want to leave you with. This is not the easiest. Matter of fact, I would say this is the most demanding of all forms of evangelism. Do you know why? Your life and my life is the main evidence. Your life, my life, is the main evidence and tool and instrument in friendship evangelism. The beauty of our lives, the the, the, the lived out of our lives, what happens in our lives to us, our life is the main indicator, is the main attraction. Our life is the main testimony of what it is that we want them to believe. And so this isn't the easiest. This is the most demanding, the most challenging form of all evangelism. Because we are literally saying, my life is the book to which I want you to see. And where do we get the power? Where do we get the power? Church, where do we get the power? Say it. Holy Spirit, has the gospel changed you? Here's the question that we're wrestling with. Is, has the gospel changed you? Has the gospel changed you? Because unless the gospel has changed you, unless the Holy Spirit has taken the gospel of Jesus Christ and has lit a fire in you, you will not be able to be effective in this. This sermon wasn't preached so that you can go, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Yep, authentic, natural. Yep, yep, yep. Now give me the steps. No, what I'm asking us this morning is this. It's for me. I have to wrap my brains around this. Maybe, maybe the reason why we are not more effective, maybe the reason why we are not more fruitful in this is not because we're not gifted at it. It's not because we're not. Maybe, maybe, maybe. The reason is because The gospel of Jesus Christ has not transformed and changed me. Because if the gospel has changed me, first, the joyful effects of the gospel, the joyful effects of the gospel in our own lives is what will ultimately give me, ultimately give me enormous energy for witness. The joyful effects of the gospel. When the gospel of Jesus Christ comes and it hits me and I realize he did that for me. He did that for me. And we see in Acts chapter 2 verse 47 that the early disciples, the effectiveness of evangelism was they were praising God and enjoying the favor of men. They were praising God, enjoying the favor of men. In other words, their evangelism and living out of their lives as witness was the result of the gospel just blowing them away. And it resulted in joy, joy, joy that nobody else knew. Just like last week, Paul and Silas in prison. They've been beaten, they've been tortured, and yet midnight they're singing hymns to God and they're praising God and their joy is as vibrant as ever. Why? Because their joy was rooted in something that was so deep. Their joy was rooted in something that was so deep that even if you took money away, their job away, occupation away, family away, their joy in God was so deep that no matter what you took anything away, the joy was still there. The joy was still there. And we're faced with the question that when it comes to evangelism living out, it's not about four steps and three steps. It's about us asking the question, has the gospel of Jesus Christ transformed my life? That there is joy. There is joy. There is joy. Joy that nothing can take away. 
Because if our joy is rooted in our job, what happens when our job is taken away? If our joy is rooted in relationship, what happens when the relationship is no longer there? If our joy is rooted in our success, what happens when we're no longer successful? If our joy is rooted in love, what happens when love breaks our heart? If our joy is rooted in anything else but Christ, what happens when that joy is not there? Not there. Do you know why every single Sunday I get up here and I talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's not just so that you can walk out and go, boy, that was encouraging. It's so that there could be a dynamite, powerful explosion in your heart with the joy of Jesus. And I'm calling you every single Sunday to say, do not root your joy in things of this world. Because if you do, it will shatter you. Your soul is too big for sex to fill it. Your soul is too big for your job to fill it. Your soul is too big for anything in this world to fill it. Your soul is too big. It's too big. Has the gospel of Jesus Christ and the person of Christ has it anchored you, has it centered you in such a way that your joy is unshakable. Mm. And they see it. They see it. They see it. And everybody else going, oh, they see the joy. They see the joy. Where do you get it from? It's real deep. Secondly, humility. The humbling nature of the gospel. The humbling nature of the gospel will enable us to approach non-Christians without superiority and a lot of respect. I say this a ton of times. I need you to get this. I need you to get this. When our non-Christian friends say, you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, you know what that's going to make you do? That's going to make you intolerant. That's going to make you judgmental. That's going to make you exclusive. And then you go, come closer. No, no, come closer. Come closer. Why? Come closer. Come closer. Look at the cross. What am I seeing? Who's hanging on the cross? Jesus, who is he dying for? His enemies? Yeah. Who is he dying for? His torturers? Yeah, yeah. Who is he dying for? People that hate him? Yeah, yeah. Who is he dying for? People that think he's nuts? Yeah. Who is he dying for? And you and I realize, if that Savior, that Jesus, invades our heart and affects us to the recess of our hearts, how in the world could we ever be intolerant, judgmental? towards people who disagree with us. How in the world? Somebody tell me. How in the world does a Christian who has that Jesus, who's dying, bleeding, being tortured on the cross for his enemies and saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If we have that Christ in our hearts, how in the world can we be judgmental and tolerant? Unless the gospel blows you away. You will never approach non-Christians with deep level of humility and deep level of respect. When the, I'll tell you when the gospel blows you away. When you meet non-Christians, you realize you are a lot more kind than I am. Yes, that's right. When you meet a non-Christian, you go, you are a lot more compassionate than I am. Uh-huh. When you meet a non-Christian, you go, you've blown me away. You're a much better per. Oh, yeah. I'm not saved because I'm good. I'm saved by The love experience of the gospel will remove us from the fear of others' disapproval. And can we all, Oprah session, can we all just be honest? We're right here, right here, right here, right here, right here. But I'm going to see Oprah this upcoming Friday. Pray for me, pray for me, okay? My wife got some tickets because she has a producer. Oprah's producer is one of her patients, right? So she got his tickets. Just pray that it's not Dr. Oz because if it's Dr. Oz, I'm walking out, okay? <laughs> pray that she's interviewing like Bono or something, you know what I mean? So please pray. Here's, here's, where was I going with that? <laughs> oh, over a moment. Over a moment. Can I, can, I just, can, I just be, can I just be honest with you guys, okay? Can I just be, again, context, relationship. Can I just? I am an incurable people pleaser when it comes to sharing the gospel. There is nothing worse for me experientially that being a Christian, trying to tell somebody about Jesus, and having that person look at me and go, you're a freak, you're a nut job, I hate you, or just give me that glance and go, please, are you serious? You must be an intellectual midget. The thing that scares me to death, and why, I'm going to be honest, why I'm not more bold, is because I'm afraid of disapproval, I'm afraid of rejection, I'm afraid of them not liking me, and I'm afraid that they no longer want to be friends with me. Can anybody relate? What will set us free from this 
fear of disapproval is when we are absolutely blown away by the gospel that says you are loved and more precious and valuable than anything. Your creator coming to you and saying, do you realize that you are a person of worth and value? Do you realize that my acceptance and my estimation of you matters more than anything else? Do you realize that my verdict of you is already given? You are righteous. You are holy. You are my son. When that verdict matters to us more than any others, we won't be afraid to be more bold. The reason why we are not more bold is because the gospel is not alive in us. I wish my son was up here right now. Do you know how unbelievably that kid, they call him the mayor in his class, preschool. They call him the mayor. They call him the mayor. The parents, do you know why? My son, Parker, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter. He's going on saying, hi, how's it going? My name is Parker. How are you? Vote with me tomorrow. How are you? That's my son. That's my son. Do you know why? When people want to get a glimpse of why my son's like that, all they need to do is see what happens at the after school when I come to pick him up. Because after school when I come to pick him up and he's waiting in his lunchroom, you know, with his other friends. Oh, my son is right there. And all the parents are waiting around. I walk in, and my son sees me at the end of the, you know, at the end of the cafeteria, and his eyes light up, and he runs, and he jumps into my arms, and he says, "Daddy!" And I hold him. And I swear to you, at that moment, it's almost as if my son looks around that entire room and goes, "This is my dad. This is my dad." I wonder. How much more freer you and I would be if we knew that our Heavenly Father looks at you and looks at me and says, Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? Now, what they say, Do you know who you are? Right now, we're going to do the most important thing that we can do in this whole aspect, which is pray. I said last week, you have non-Christian friends say, you know what? I will never set foot, foot inside of a church. <laughs> Go to God. No way. The great thing about prayer, you could take them and bring them to God. How many of you have friends that you can be praying for? Stand up. Stand up with me. Stand up. Worship team, come on up, please. Worship team, come on up. Communion service, please come on up. Communion service, please come on up. You and I are about to do an unbelievably powerful, powerful thing here this morning, and that is we are about to take some of these folks that we know who want nothing to do with God, who want nothing to do with God. We are about to take them to God. We're about to take them to God. We're about to take them to God. You know their names? You know their faces? Some of you, your heart's been breaking, man. I, I, you, you, you cry. You cry and you weep for these, these people. They're your mom, they're your dad, they're your brother, your sister. They're your coworkers, they're your friends that you've known for forever. And just even the thought of them not knowing Jesus, just the thought of them not knowing God, just the thought of you not being able to spend eternity with them, and then an eternity with God, the thought of that just breaks your heart and makes you weep. And God says that the most important and powerful thing we can do is, is that we can, we can bring them to God. We can bring them to God here right now. And so here's what I want you to do. Um, we are taking communion today. We are taking communion today. And what I want you to do is, as you stand there and as you think about these people and as, as you remember their names and their faces, when you come up, when you come up to take communion, you take the bread and you take the cup. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to thank God and I want you to pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ and what this symbolizes would just absolutely blow 
blow you away today that you would have the level of, a level of confidence, a level of humility, gentleness, and a level of boldness that you would have for the gospel because of this. And secondly, after that, I want to encourage you. There's a cross of Jesus Christ right here. Kneel before the cross, bow before the cross. You bring that person to the cross and you say, Jesus, I pray for my mom. I pray for my dad. I pray for these people. We'll also have the prayer team up here as well as the pastoral staff. And you want one of us to pray with you because you have a hard time praying on your own? Please ask us and we want to pray for you and pray with you. We as a church will bring hundreds and hundreds of people to the very throne room of God this morning before we go home. Trusting that our unstoppable God who's an unstoppable mission will be at work. And the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he said, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you take this, do it in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant. It represents the blood that, that was shed for you. Blood that was shed for you, recognizing and reminding you that you do not enter the throne room of God on your moral effort, on your goodness, on your righteousness, but based on the righteousness of Christ and his death on the cross for you. And that you can enter in to your dad's throne room with confidence. So friends, this morning is a special morning as you come up to take communion. Worship along with our worship team and bring these men and women to the cross to other people that are praying for you. The Lord invites you whenever you're ready. Whenever you're ready, come forward. There are two stations in the back. Look for the stations that are nearest to you and let's worship our God. Let's worship our God. The Lord invites us. Please come. Please come. a good God. He is a good God. He is a good, good God. He is, he is a good, gracious God. And I want you to remember when you walk out here today, that what he's calling you to do is not to do more stuff, to do added stuff. What he's asking you to do is to remember who he is, what he has done, and have that so melt your heart, so blow you away, so passionately light you on fire that you cannot help but tell people who he is and what he has done. You are loved. You are his. You are loved. You are his. May that passion for you, may pursuit for you, motivate you as you live your life for Jesus this week. In the name of the Father, name of the Son, name of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great, great, victorious week.